Good afternoon, everyone from Singapore. And my name is Clemens Che from the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Today is our ninth installment of the ME 101 series that we have here at our Institute after the introduction by our ex Executive Director, Michelle Till. Last week, last week's lecture covered climate change and it was done by Dr. Aisha Sarihi. Today, we are very, very happy to host Dr. Sharifa Yahyai as our guest speaker for today on the lecture entitled Women and Youth, A Force for Change. Now, before I begin um, introducing Dr. Sharifa's profile, let me say a few words about this topic and then uh, we can encourage some food for thought among you guys so, yeah, so that at the end of her lecture, you can of course put forward your questions in the chat box on Zoom. So we'll start with the topic about women and the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, among the GCC states, you have, you know, uh, female cabinet ministers, three in Oman from, uh, from which uh, Dr. Sharifa is from at the minute, and the three cabinet, female cabinet ministers in Oman are in positions of education, covering portfolios of education, higher education, and social development. And we see elsewhere in the Gulf on, uh, so let's say the UAE has nine, Qatar has two, Kuwait one, Bahrain one, and Saudi Arabia, you know, currently has none, but has a, has a chairwoman of the Saudi Stock Exchange, whose name is Sarah Suhaimi. And since 2017, she has been in charge of the Saudi Stock Exchange. So the positioning of women in GCC cabinets and heading financial institutions is still a relatively young process. And if we look at legislative bodies, elected bodies, they had no recent luck with elected female MPs, notably, you know, the Shurai Council elections in Qatar uh, most recently, and last December's parliamentary elections in Kuwait, both produced no female MPs. And over the last 16 years in the GCC, women have gained uh, the right to vote from Kuwait to Saudi Arabia, um, Saudi Arabia being the local elections in 2015, and in the UAE in 2006, then nationwide elections. So these are some things to, to ponder. And you know, have women been involved in popular protests that, that, you might, that you may ask because of the Arab Spring about 10 years ago? And we have seen recent revolutions, notably in uh, Lebanon, Sudan, Iraq, and they were labeled al-Thawra al-Unta. So the revolution is female. And these are really because of emblematic women involved where, for example, a, a lady who kicked the security guard in Lebanon or a lady who was on top of a car in uh, Sudan. So these are very, you know, symbolic parts of these protests that became, you know, you know, a hype on social media at least. And, you know, but the real questions, the real question is, have these served women's rights, you know? Uh, as part of the protests. And, and we see 10 years ago in the Arab Spring, there were protests, but, but there were also harassment on female protesters. So this is something to, to ponder about. And on youth, um, of course, protest movements also uh, involve youth. And, and one of the biggest ones is in Iraq uh, recently and also two years ago on rig elections. So the reality is that across the MENA region, there is a youth bulge and the youth potential is untapped, which is something our guest speaker will be talking about later on. Uh, UNICEF report said, you know, called uh, MENA Generation 2030, talked about, talked about you know, a, a risk of increasing uh, the number of out-of-school children by 2030. 
and, and this increase could be up to 5 million. So there has been you know, concerns surrounding this in the MENA region. So what can we do? Should we, do, should we go forward with structural reforms nationally or should we have a region-wide approach or, a more, or someone to champion this agenda? So this is something uh, that's in, in, in your minds. And now let me introduce our guest speaker for today, Dr. Sharifa Yahya. She, she's the former Minister of Social Development in Oman from 2004 to 2011. She's an academic specialist in women's studies. And also before she assumed her ministerial portfolio uh, in Oman, she was uh, a professor at Sultan Qaboos University where she was teaching Arabic and Gulf literature. And she's now still a visiting lecturer at the College of Arts and Social Sciences. Dr. Sharifa has participated extensively in nation national and international conventions on women's empowerment, children's rights and civil society. And she received numerous awards for our efforts. So without further ado, please let me welcome Dr. Sharifa Yaya. Over to you. Thank you, Clemens. Good morning from Muscat to everybody who is joining us for this uh, series of talk. And I am so pleased for getting uh, part of this series by the uh, Singapore National Universities and uh, actually by Middle Eastern Institutes in Singapore University. Uh, my talk will be quite wide, uh, not far from what you mentioned, Clemens, but it, it will start from not the historical background of the MENA region, but I will be uh, tackling some issues and challenges that Today we are facing it because of 2020 and the uh, COVID uh, pandemics. So mainly my topic will be divided into main uh, or actually three main points. First of all, it's the uh, background of the MENA region, especially when it comes to women and youth roles. Then we will move toward what we have faced of uh, 2020 implications on youth women and education, mental health, uh, employment. This is, this is actually we need to tackle because this is what we have today as, as a very big challenge for the people of the MENA region. Then gradually we will move to, of course, the GCC. And we will be talking about the population and the youth population itself. And the youth population also will be divided into the female population youth and then male population youth. And what are the main challenges that the youth of GCC, both male and female, facing today? Then we will go end up with the challenges that we have and how to bring youth to be agent for change, or as we mentioned, to be force of change, actually in the very sensitive topic. And I think the whole world is facing it today. It's the economic recession that we are facing. Uh, as an, a very strong implication of the 2020s and COVID, uh, Corona COVID-19. So, but before that, let me just give a, a small brief about the Middle East, uh, women and youth in Middle East, actually. It's, I think most of your uh, people who attend the, uh, the Institute either have visited Middle East or GCC, or have at least friends, or have read about Middle East. 
which is the MENA region, of course, Middle East and North Africa. And they have some good idea about what we are living in Middle East and how we live and our traditions, our values, when it comes to the old generations comparing to the today's generation. They also, I'm sure that they have uh, get close to the uh, um, majority of what's going on in the, in the region. There is another stereotype that it's been distributed in many publications about women actually in, of GCC or women in Middle East. The negative stereotype that presenting women as they are oppressed or they've been controlled by male dominated um, societies or they've been uh, playing the role of being victims of the social or traditions or values. This is this stereotype, we cannot get over it if we just read or write about the same topic and we keep tackling it for nearly 50 to 60 years of our life. We have to go deep and think about what we have gained today as women in Middle East and the uh, GCC as well. So let's uh, go through what I am presenting. And uh, my apologies, uh, Clemens, that couldn't send you the uh, presentation earlier because uh, I, I just fin finalized it yesterday. So the main topic, as I mentioned, and as you introduced that the challenge beyond economics, women and youth are force of change. Uh, I'll begin with the, what we face on the 2020. Before the 2020 came, everybody, everybody was expecting some huge celebrations. We, we were supposed to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Beijing Platform for Action and Gender Equality. And that where everybody was like preparing their reports, the national reports, they're discussing what is the achievements being done for gender equality. This is one thing. The second thing, we're supposed to celebrate also the 20th anniversary of MDGs. What, how can we get off the poverty or extreme poverty? How can we get off the women equality? How can we get off different goals that's been uh, mentioned by uh, in the MDGs. Everything was like the world was off track to end poverty by 2030. That's, that, that's our target in 2030. Unfortunately, because of COVID-19, everything went like with the wind. Women and youth are at the core of MDGs and SDGs where we're supposed to celebrate and uh, bringing the achievements. But COVID-19 implications caused over 71 million people pushed into extreme poverty in the MENA region. And the pandemic couldn't have hit the worst time for at least 110 million young people aged of 15 to 29. So this is, this is where we are today. This is the situation that we have facing today and living because of COVID-19. Now I'll move to uh, another slide which is mentioned the, what we have as a global economy of in 2020. The global economy shrink by 5.2 in the MENA region. And the human development and poverty declined within the working class and rural communities because of the lockdown that we have faced. 
labor exporting experience, rising the unemployment among, among youth and women. And the consumer products, the retail, the travel, the tourism, the hospitality sectors suffered and because of the lockdown and because of no, uh, no traveling or no uh, movement. 23.6 billion direct economic losses in the, in, the, uh, in the global economy. Now, if I'm talking about the gender equality and the MDGs and the SDGs uh, goals, we will see 2020 was the year of severe setback in gender equality and women rights in the MENA region. The MENA achieved 2.76% only in women workforce. That, that's the, the recent achievements, but over 1.7 million jobs has lost in the early 2020. 700,000 was, was only women jobs. On the other hand, an increasement by 3.4 in women unemployment rate. Beside what we have lost, there is also an increase uh, in the employment, unemployment rate. So the full gender equality remains unreached. 36% women was the goal in local government and 25% in national parliament by 2020. This is in the MENA region. That was with the early uh, 2020. But the pandemic depending, deeping the pre-existence inequalities that we face in the MENA region. Now I'll move during the pandemic, what women actually of the MENA region have suffered from. The lockdowns, the reduced mobility, intensified women, care for home, children, women being locked within their home to take care of their children, to take care of the elderly people, and to take care of the uh, online schooling students. The lose of male through death or the illness or unemployment rate, those males who lost their jobs, also, it was heavy toll on women, especially those who are not working, women and mothers. So women spend about three times as many hours in unpaid domestic and care works as men in the MENA region. And when it comes to the children and how, how women will take care of their own children, because of the closure of childcare, the nurseries, the school pushed working mothers to leave their uh, jobs, to be able to sit with their uh, children at home. So 30% in the MENA region, domestic violence against women and girls increased, uh, mainly in some countries like Lebanon, uh, Morocco, Jordan, uh, Egypt. And 70% of women were in front lines of fighting the coronavirus because they were in the hospitals as nurses and social workers. Another thing that we need uh, to mention is the labor force for the for in MENA region. The global average of labor force in the whole world is 60 in the in the uh, 60.51. But when it comes to MENA region, it's very far still. It's 47.96%. And that's because also it, it, it becomes that uh, average because 20% of, of women are not working in the MENA region. 
So the, the participation of labor force for women is very, very low. More than 178 million young women uh, are unemployed. 40% uh, of them are youth. And those youth are informal sectors where they can uh, have no uh, insurance or no uh, stabili stability of the, of the jobs. So they might lose it. And also not to mention the low uh, wages. More than one in six young people are unemployed in the MENA region because also the working hours fell because of the lockdown. I'll go to the education in the MENA region, what they have faced because of the coronavirus. They uh, close to 100 million students are, were out of uh, school because of the lockdown. And 47 million students affected due to the education system and the online uh, learning methods. 51.6% household in the region, in the MENA region, have internet access. And connectivity, connectivity remains as a challenge because, you know, the, uh, the areas, different, different uh, areas in the region, it's uh, not yet even have the internet connections. Girls less access to computers and technology at home. So this is what the uh, implication of uh, COVID-19 on education. We'll move to the uh, mental breakdown or mental health that caused by coronavirus school closure, the lack of access to sport, social venues, there is no events that people can go out or there is no uh, health center or health fitness uh, centers are open. So that cause threat to those already who are struggling with mental health issues. Lockdown also and home quarantine risk increased violence against women, people and uh, young women and, uh, young, and young youth. Uh, not to mention the severe depression among uh, young men aged between 15 to 24 and young women between age of 20 to 24. Uh, mothers left to deal alone with the pressure of e-learning systems, especially with the preschool children. Abuse girls and young women had no access to hot, hotline or shelters. Uh, even here with the region itself, so many families during the quarantine and lockdown have had a very uh, severe family problems like divorces. The divorce rate increased. The violence against children and against young girls has been, became as, a, as a, an issue. So that's what we have to be trained how to get over it gradually when the coronavirus will be uh, gone. Now we will go for the power of youth. What is the challenge that the youth in the, in the MENA region have, uh, are facing today? The MENA is characterized by a young and well-educated population with 60% below the age of 30. This is the whole MENA region. It's not only the GCC, but the whole MENA region is characterized by being young population. Over 25 million Arab youth are not in education or or employment or training. 
85.1 young working age Arabs are in the informal sector, as, as I mentioned, with no access to social or health insurance or credit facilities. This is what we need to just build some strategies to get over it and trying to improve uh, these challenges. Unemployment rate among young women is 42% in the region, in the MENA region in 2020, which is very high. And this is now more even than the double of the young men. Youth unemployment is the highest in the whole world and the fastest growing, increasing from 19.5 to 26.3 between 2012 and 2020. This rate is quite scary. And that's what we need also from the governments and from the uh, uh, private business to work together to get uh, lowering the, uh, this rate. Now we'll move to my second uh, part, which is the youth and women in GCC in 2020. Let's start with the population that we have. As I mentioned, it's even, the population of GCC is even younger than the population of the, uh, the whole MENA region. 57.4 million with the average growth 10% in, 19 to, uh, in 2019. This is the total population of the GCC. 53% of this total population are migrants and expatriates living within the uh, the GCC. 1,300,000 they are male, 400,000 are female. Is the connection okay? My voice is clear. Uh, you were frozen for a bit, but now you're back. Yeah, that's what I noticed. Yeah, there is a signal came that it's yeah. weak. But you're back. Am I you're clear back. now, following up yes. on track? Yes, absolutely. Okay. From the total population that we have in the GCC, the biggest one is in Saudi Arabia of 59.7%. This is today, this is 2020 census by the National and GCC Centers uh, data. Okay, now we will move to the youth of the GCC. How the, the gender imbalance between male and female, 20, 1.9 of the GCC population in general, either nationals or uh, migrants, uh, are the age under the age of 15. 75.4 is between the age of 15 to 64 years old. And this percent is uh, mainly uh, migrants more than the population itself, than the nationals themselves. 2.8 are 65 years old and above. 
and majority of the, the, the third one, 2.8, are nationals. Because most who lives in, in GCC are uh, working migrants. Now we will go to on the gender imbalance, as I mentioned before. The gender imbalance that we have is 182 male to every 100 female. The male population within the GCC is 35.2 million, which is 61.3%. Female population is 22 million, 0.2, which is 38.7%. And these are both, as I said, uh, expatriate and uh, nationals. Now we'll move to the women or female of GCC. The population of the female GCC either as I said, uh, nationals or unnationals. And because we mentioned Saudi Arabia is the highest rate of population, so they have 34.8 million. The female is 14.4 million in Saudi. UAE 9.8 million, the female is 3.03 million female. Oman, the total population is 4.47. Female are only 2.21. Kuwait, 4.2 total population, uh, million, female is 1.6. Qatar, uh, 2.8 total population, 2.8 million, females are only 698.5. And we will come to the lowest, Bahrain is the total population 1.7, million female is 586, which is the lowest in the whole uh, GCC region. We'll go to the uh, agent of change or agent for change, the GCC women and youth. As I mentioned, uh, this is the core of the uh, topic that I'm talking about. We'll start with the challenge that we have in GCC among the uh, population. 12% unemployed national youth are male. And 36%, which is the female. And if you, if you see 12%, three times are female unemployment, three times than the male unemployment rates within, within the nationals themselves, within the citizen of the GCC. Total unemployment youth in Saudi Arabia is 32, which is the highest. Kuwait, 16%. Oman, 12%. UAE and Bahrain is only 7%. Qatar is 0.1%. Uh, national unemployed female with high level of education seems not aligned with the business sector's needs. And this is, this is another challenge actually. And even myself facing it when we were working on uh, uh, female participation in workforce that we, find, we found a GCC female has or have very high uh, education degrees. Uh, above BA, MA, and PhD. Majority of these uh, women are not uh, uh, looking for a job and they prefer that after graduation, they will stay home taking care of their family or even prefer to be taken care by, by male, uh, either father or um, husband. So they are, by themselves willing to stay home and doing uh, no job 
according to the degrees that they uh, obtained. We will go for the also jobs uh, within the youth. Youth themselves elect to forego good work opportunities in private sectors. They don't want to. Why? Because they've been uh, paid by their parents. They will be securing their uh, allowance or their car or their mortgage or everything. So the parents will be also uh, controlling the youth not to have a job in a private sector or in, uh, in uh, informal sectors. High job positions in private sectors require college degree where the male youth don't have. They prefer not to go for a higher uh, education. They prefer to have job with no job in private sectors. They were just looking for formal uh, jobs opportunities. Women with higher degrees, as I said, and as I mentioned that they prefer public sectors only. Some jobs are manual because they're seeing by both uh, job seekers and their parents, as I mentioned, uh, just a few seconds. Now we will be talking about the migrants uh, in the whole region in GCC. Migrants, almost 50% of the total population of GCC, and they are a mix of high-skilled professionals and low-skilled, according to the job uh, market required. Highest labor force rate in general in UAE, which is 87.3%. Then Qatar, will it has 82.1% uh, of the uh, migrants working. Qatar has biggest immigration rate in the world. It's 40%, 40.62%. And Qatar population has decreased by 50,000 uh, early 2020 when the migrants start leaving the countries because of the corona. In, uh, from January and September 2020, almost 196,000 person has left Oman, which is uh, around 4.2% for the same reason that Qatar faced. Now we will go for the female participation in the workforce in GCC. Women globally, as we all know that they are overrepresented in sectors with face-to-face -face contacts. Uh, women prefer to work with the, uh, uh, not only the uh, administration work, but they need to communicate face-to-face. -face. Uh, such sectors are worst hit by the pandemic, like retail, beauticians, salespersons, waitress, or hospitality. Female migrants in GCC largely found in healthcare, domestic workers, education, and preschools. That's where majority of the uh, female uh, workforce. 32 non-nationals female employed in different informal sectors. And female workforce participation dropped between 2017 to 2020. And this drop, it's the difference uh, between each country. Like Qatar, it's dropped from 60, till 57% uh, in UAE dropped from 56 to 52% in Kuwait 56 to 90 to 49 and in Bahrain from 51 to 45% in Oman the female participation dropped from 34% to 31 and finally in Saudi Arabia it's dropped from 28 
to 22%. And that's according to the uh, World Bank uh, report uh, in, uh, in 2020. I'll move now to the female uh, nationals, where they are actually preferred to be presented. They are in white collar jobs in public sectors that they're their um, first priorities. Female nationals in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia are not overrepresented in face-to-face -face contact sectors, according maybe to the, I understand in Saudis, but I don't understand why in Bahrain women are not uh, overrepresented in face-to-face -face contacts. Uh, women perform higher share of house, uh, household chores. Uh, homeschooling children and uh, caring for elderly. They are where they prefer to be uh, presented. Now I will mention the same point that you start with it, Clemens, uh, women in leadership. Uh, you mentioned uh, Bahrain and Qatar in your, uh, in your introduction that they have given uh, the uh, right to vote and in Kuwait, Oman was the first in GCC since 1994. Women, uh, Omani women have uh, privileged to have the uh, right to vote and to be elected from 1994 in the uh, Shura Council. But when it comes to women in leadership in GCC, the leadership position still in a very wider gap when looking at the number of women sitting on boards of directors. UAE score, of course, the highest, as you mentioned, with the number of women uh, in 2017, 18 women in the, uh, in the high uh, position of leadership, followed by 16 in Saudi Arabia. So these two countries are in number one and two among the GCC uh, women in leadership. 13% of GCC female are CEO only compared to 1221 in all developing countries. So this is still very low that we are, uh, we need to get, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, recommendations or strategies or, or policies that we have to bring more women into leadership positions. Share ranks in executive roles from 6% in Saudi Arabia, 7% in Qatar, 17% in UAE and 22% in Bahrain. And unfortunately, I don't have a data about Oman. We'll move to the downturn point, the implications of COVID that the whole world been facing since late 2019. The main topic is the economic the economy that we are now, we need to really uh, tackle and we need to discuss it widely and loudly, and uh, especially the GCC economy. The socioeconomic lockdowns turned 2020 original growth dynamic around 180 degrees, like we are going to the zero ground. 2020 was marked by recession across the GCC as a whole. Uh, the economics contracted by 7.6%, UAE economic contracted by th minus 3.2%, and in Saudi, minus 2.3%. Oil prices dropped 
down uh, very uh, dramatically. We go to the uh, GCC labor market also dropped as a half million of workforce has left from the early 2020. Also a uh, large number of expatriate departs either by their will or because of the government and the private sector's lockdown. 300,000 or more in Saudi Arabia have left since the 2020. Economic downturn in tourism, aviation, oil sectors due to the decrease of the global demands and the cost of the pandemic passed uh, on people life by uh, governments through imposing pay, cut, tax, retirement scheme. That's all the GCC has shared since the 2020 to just recover the loss and the shrink of the economic growth. Now I will be talking, uh, maybe this was the last uh, topic or the last uh, section of my talk. It's the how to get women and youth to be agents for change. Why we are talking about or focusing on uh, women and youth actually, because they are easy to reach their peers in groups to support other youth and girls, especially in the vulnerable groups that we've been suffered because of the pandemic. Youth and young women, they have the power to disseminate information through networks online and social media. They are really, they are, the controller of the social media and the online uh, even business. Youth and young women are very networked, digitally native, resilient, and socially conscious, economically very active. So we have to put in mind, the government has to put in mind and also the, uh, the private business that they have to get as much as they can to activate the economy by involving youth and young women. The national, the United Nations report in 2020 has mentioned that young people aged 18 to 24 are more likely to be social entrepreneur than to be a commercial entrepreneurship for entrepreneurs. Why? Because they display greater agility than non-youth led firms in adapting business and coping strategies in response to the crisis. Youth-led firms are create customized and new products. And they can turn to online sales and they are good in increasing market efforts in response to the crisis. And that's what we had faced really during the pandemic and lockdown. How can we bring youth and young people to uh, activate the business uh, recession and to bring back what we have lost and what we, the business shrink? Youth and women entrepreneurs represent a huge resource that they can be mobilized. And they have uh, multiplayer effects of youth employment. They can, youth and young people can share and can work as a team to hire uh, another youth with the same mentality that they share according to their age and their education 
and also they are more understanding of hiring youth with the reasonable uh, wages. So they are excellent in also technology, telecommunications and online business. And that's the chance to recover what we have faced because of the COVID. Youth and young girls are also source for solving gender inequalities and climate change and business crisis. They are the future economic hope by having uh, specific characters that youth really good at. They are innovative, they are ambitious, they are optimistic, and they are control social media and online social and political campaigns when it comes to the campaigns that uh, running by the uh, youth. And they maintain high flexibility. They are very clever and they're being able to shift gears and make use of digital technologies to further drive uh, the awareness among communities. 2020 is the perfect, oh, 20, not 2020, 2022. The next year is the best or the perfect time for governments to shift toward their nationalization strategies and to benefit from youth and uh, to handle them the role of leadership in economic diversifications, in education, in unemployment, and in gender inequalities. So they are very strong and very powerful tools that we have to get benefit of when, we, when the government look at to uh, reform some challenges that they have. So government must honor young citizens, the role to bring them back to the job market. That's the last word that I have. I hope I didn't take long time. Then what the time being uh, devoted for this presentation and thank you very much for listening. And uh, I hope that this presentation add a knowledge to the uh, attendance of the Middle East, Middle East Institutes in the university. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sharifa, for your wonderful presentation. Uh, you, you gave us a lot to think about, especially on uh, women and youth, uh, on, on, on the education levels and on the unemployment levels. So we're now coming to the Q&A segment. So let me remind our audience that you can, of course, uh, put your question forward through the Zoom chat box to MEI events. And then uh, we will, of course, pass on the questions. I will read it out to, to Dr. Sharifa. So uh, while you guys are putting on your thinking caps, which are churning furiously right now, let me ask my first question because, you know, Dr. Sharifa talked about, you know, the, the education levels, the fact that women have started to draw parity with their male counterparts in terms of the education levels. They are no short of uh, their degrees, even in, in, in higher degrees. So in such a scenario, you know, uh, why is there still, you know, that huge unemployment rates that you're talking about, you know, it, despite the fact that, you know, you're seeing them drawing level in terms of qualification. So why is it still, what are the barriers for, for women? Maybe, uh, to be honest, majority of the barriers are social, social values and traditions. You know, there's a, like a, 
contradictions within the uh, the GCC people themselves, their mentality, especially when it comes to women mentality, they prefer to be having higher degree because that's what they can show themselves and show the uh, community that we have. We have the higher degree, we have a PhD degree or MA degree or even BA degree, but we prefer not to work. Why do we bother ourselves of going out in labor market and be threatened by whoever uh, boss is, or he will be like, uh, we will, it's not worth to work with the low income. We prefer to stay home, to feel more uh, as a housewife or a household taking care of the kids. Plus the husband will still pay them, uh, you know, like an, uh, an allowance or monthly allowance or whatever. They will buy them a car. They will live the life that they have. They will enjoy their time. The contradictions that we face that we keep asking and we keep presenting and many of the uh, national reports showing that women participation in workforce and labor market are very low among the nationals. On the other hand, we complain that the labor, the migrant labor force is high. So that's the point that they will think about uh, traditions. It's more traditions. In Oman, we don't have this, but in UAE, in Qatar, majority of the uh, women with higher degree prefer to stay home. And they're not even registered under the manpower or the uh, uh, Ministry of Labor for as, as a, a job seekers. They said, no, we have a degree because we want to have a degree, but we don't want a job. We don't want to work. Thank you, Dr. Sharifa. If I, my, if I may add another question, and you mentioned about the preference for the public sector, as though that, you know, this is a, a job for life or guaranteed security, you know, is there going to be a change in mindset? Are we seeing this because you talk about the impact of, of COVID and also you talked about the oil price collapse. So, you know, going forward, will we see this mindset change, you know, about that whole uh, job for life mindset in, in the public sector? You know, it will not change with the young uh, people who just graduated from MA or BA because, you know, the opportunities, the attractions to the job sectors will not hire new graduates with the high income. And you know what? They, those people who work in, in the formal sectors with the lockdown, with the pandemic, they didn't lose their jobs. They secure their jobs with the same wages, with the same income, and they don't go to work. Those who work in private sectors or the informal sectors, they are the ones who being suffered and face really the implications by let them out from the, they left the job, not by their own choice, but they've been uh, fired or uh, there was no demand for going to work. The mentality is it will change. It depends on how active are the private sector is and how strong and how, how being uh, supported by the government. This is all criteria that we need to look at. If the government support private sectors and encourage uh, entrepreneurship to go uh, as part of another arm of the national economy, then I'm sure the mindset of the young people will change toward the private sectors. 
But if it stays the same, there is no uh, incentives that asking, letting people to go and, and uh, get uh, a chance in the private sector. On the other hand, some, some youth already felt uh, the private sector is attractive to them. It depends on the, uh, the, the type of business they're doing. If it's, if it's with the uh, online sales or with the dealing with technologies and e-communications, then it will be another window to activate their private business. And that's where the uh, youth will really uh, feel attracted to the private sectors. Yes, and, and, and that's what you mentioned in your presentation on, on entrepreneurship. And I'll come back to maybe national strategies later. And of course, you know, in, in Oman, you have the, the recent protests in Sohar. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and that's, of course, an, an issue on, on about graduation, graduating without a job you know, or, or even incentives to participate. So now I have a question from my colleague, uh, a visiting professor at MEI, uh, Georgi Bustin. He asks, how does the youth unemployment rates affect uh, migration outflow prospects? What are the possible directions of these migration outflows? Before or now? I guess I'll answer for him maybe before and now. I guess, I guess both, we can say that before and after. Before and after. It was before uh, most of the migrations in the GCC, not Qatar, we don't mention Qatar and UAE, but in Bahrain, Kuwait, Saudis, majority of these migrants are at the low skilled uh, workforce. These low skilled workforce will not attract nationals will never attract nationals. They are forego these specific uh, jobs and opportunities because they want the prestigious uh, jobs and they want the, the, presti the uh, a cliche, uh, you know, where they can, say, they can just loudly will say that we work as director or we'll work as uh, senior positions. Today, by majority of the migrants left the countries, majority of them, and whoever stayed still, still in a, in a, in a market that not attract uh, the nationals. When it's well, if we come like salespersons or beauticians or school teachers or nurses, this is these sectors will not attract nationals. But 2022 is the another window for the GCC economy to reform by bringing the youth with no degrees. We don't have to leave them aside because these are the, the, the uh, what we call the turbulence for the region. Uh, active and uh, yeah, you know, because I can't, I see the freeze of the screen. The network is not yeah. clear, maybe. Yeah, you're on the red, red bar now. So now you're back. Just now you were frozen, but now you're, you're back. We missed the, the latest part of your answer. Yeah. 
to youth with no degree. We have to bring them back to the market. They don't have degrees, but they cannot stay as a challenge or as a to the region. We have to open the door for them in different sectors. Okay, thank you, Dr. Sharifa. I think we got you back again. Uh, but you're muted at the minute. Uh, we have a next question from another colleague of mine, Alex Arduino, on, uh, on you know, the barriers, again, going back to the question on barriers or the glass ceiling you know, as, as artificial barriers that, prevented, that prevent qualified women from advancing in their corporate career. So you know, he, he asked, and you, you talked a bit about the social barriers here, but is it even possible for um, you know, different classes of women to break through this, this glass ceiling? Because when we talk about uh, women in, in leadership positions, you know, there's a tendency for these to come from huge uh, business or merchant families or, or from the ruling families. So now his question is really, can, can women from different social classes break through that corporate glass ceiling or how? And why? Women from normal social classes, they are the only, the only uh, tool to break that ceiling, the glass ceiling. Let's forget about women from high class, high social class or royal classes because they are not in need to be participated in their workforce. But those women who really get their degree and they work for it and they fight for it, they are the only tool that we have. They are the only agent that we have to break that uh, glass ceiling and to be part of the uh, job uh, workforce. Thank you. And we've got another question from, uh, from Tracy Lim who asked, you know, what is the best approach in, in the MENA region or the GCC towards integrating youth into the workshop? Do you need a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach? Both. We need them both. The top up, uh, the uh, bottom line approach from the community itself, from the youth themselves, and from the top one, it's from the government. Both has to be connected and work. And even those people who are in the government, they have to think from the point of youth perspectives. You know what, like, like uh, I'll give you another uh, idea about women became threats especially with the higher degree became threat to men. This is the same approach that people with the uh, policy makers, especially, I will not say male or female, but those who are in the policy maker, they see youth as a threat. They don't deal with them as these are their own, you know, their own nationals, their own people that they have to be brought up and to be, uh, mangled with the policy uh, maker uh, people or mindset of these people. So they, women and youth, being looked as they are a threat to those who are at the top level. And that's what they need to really get rid of that stereotype. Thank you. Uh, we got another question from Yuan uh, asking, uh, Dr. Yahya to comment on the state of uh, girls' education in the rest of the MENA, apart from the GCC. What is, what is the status at the minute? 
the girls' education? Yes. Or female Girl, education. A female education is even better than uh, within within the MENA region. How, I mean, apart from the GCC. Apart so from the GCC, of, yeah. it's still it's still very wide gap to uh, to reach the uh, the gender uh, quality education in the in the MENA region. It's, it's it's still wider compared to the global uh, gap. And and we, another question, yeah, please. We, we are in in the as a MENA region, it's number one within the world that it's the gap between male and female education. It's uh, the gap. It's still wider and bigger, which is number one in the in the uh, global uh, rank. Another question is, what are the trends on gender perspective inclusion in military, in the military sector, in the military force or security sector? Maybe the, this one, I will answer it uh, from the Oman perspective or Oman methods. Oman as a country involved female to be in the military and the uh, for police sectors very strong since the 1970, even before any of the GCC uh, government have approached women to be part of the uh, of the arm uh, army force or royal uh, or royal army force. So Oman is uh, advanced when it comes to bringing women in the uh, in the armed force. So we have we have ladies maybe what we call it in the uh, Royal Oman police, uh, Royal uh, uh, police women in the Royal uh, Oman police. And we have uh, a musician bands for only women in the police. And we have head of the uh, police station uh, officer, which is female in Oman. So we are quite advanced when it comes to uh, this point. And would you say that applies across the GCC as well? I mean, I think so. Yes, they do have uh, Bahrain. They do have Kuwait. They do. Uh, I'm not sure about uh, Qatar and Emirates and UAE. I'm not sure about it. I have to look at this uh, into details because if you see the whole presentation is data, so I get I get uh, more data, general data, but I didn't focus on the uh, this point. Yeah. And, and also, I think I'll go back to my you know, earlier point in my own introduction about uh, legislative bodies. And of course, Oman has its own legislative bodies as well. And you know, when we look at uh, Qatar and, and Kuwait, you know, there are recent elections and we see no, no elected female MPs. You know, is that a sign that you know, society is, is not ready? For, for, for this change, you know, what can you say? What, what are the, what's the significance of these? It's not, it's not only Clemens in Qatar and Kuwait. Uh, the whole issue is in GCC. Having two candidates or three or even four comparing to the whole number of candidates in, in the parliament doesn't reflect that the participation is good. Uh, and Oman recently since, uh, since 1994, Today, we have only two candidates, female candidates in the Shura Council. Uh, to, to get to the point, there is an issue discussed 
10 years or maybe 20 years in Oman. And I'm sure that it's been discussed in the whole uh, GCC region. Um, this issue consider women as a social case or as a social uh, subject, which is totally inappropriate. Women are nationals and citizens when it comes to be part of the whole uh, frame in the, uh, in, the, in the country. So when it comes to elections, Shura elections especially, not the state elections, because in, in the state council, we don't have uh, election. It's been uh, appointed by the, uh, by the head of the states. But when it comes to the Shura and the elections, there is some game that women has to be to play with very uh, careful politics is a game <coughs> sorry if we leaving if we leaving the uh, women participation in politics to the society the society will never change take it 100% from my own perspective from my own understanding of our of our uh, gcc national uh, environment, women will not be elected by male or even female. So there will be no change in the mindset when it comes to the parliament, uh, parliament elections. The only way to get out of it is the quota. And the quota being implemented by many, many, many countries in the whole world. And when it comes to the MENA region, Morocco implemented quota, Egypt, Iraq, Yemen, uh, Syria, Jordan, and whoever implemented quota, it's only for like 15 to 10 years. Then people will get, the, the whole people of the country will, will get uh, to see and to hear women in the parliament and to get it into a normal situation. Then gradually, they will get used to see women in the parliament and they can remove the quota. But without quota, there is nothing will be changed uh, in the GCC. And today, until today, when, when someone talk about the quota, they said, no, 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 no. We don't encourage quota, even by, by politicians, even by the government. We don't want quota because if we implement quota, then those who are unqualified of women will get into the uh, parliament and we, there will be no benefit. On the other hand, how do we measure men are qualified to this uh, parliament? They've been elected by the people, either male or female or men of the whole uh, uh, country. So it's not because they are qualified no, because people are, uh, believe in a male-dominated country or society. So because they are male, they have the right to be presented in, in the parliament. But if it comes to women, no, no, no. Women are not qualified to do that. So that's, that's the contradiction that we have. So government, government has to implement quota, and that's the only way to change the, uh, the, uh, the understanding that we have. And this is, this is actually, it's not good for the region, for the GCC. 
we've been talking about political participations and we've been talking about women empowerment. We have to empower women through quota first, then we will open the door to be uh, normal in the parliament. Yeah, that's a, that's a rather bleak outlook and, and, and you know, you talked a bit about setting targets, setting quotas, you know, and, and this is where, you know, the, the question comes in about national strategies, you know, where, when should this come and, and where are these strategies now? I mean, when we talk about women, you just talked about women. What about the youth? Are there any national, you know, policies or nationwide policies or national strategies in place to integrate you know, uh, newly fresh graduates into the, into the workforce or giving them an opportunity to come in? You know, what's the status right now? Let's say yesterday we had the National Youth Day in Oman. So we celebrate the National Youth Day yesterday. There is a committee for youth, Amani youth. Uh, it's within the uh, government entity. There is ministry for youth. It has to be strategy. And the ministry of youth really run by very uh, young people. They are, they are really uh, very active. This is Oman, but the majority of GCC, as, as I mentioned before, uh, Clemens, our population are very young, age 30 and, and above. So we have to, uh, the countries has to believe in the youth capabilities and cap capacities. Where are we heading? I think we learned enough from COVID-19. We learned enough from the economy shrink. We learned in, enough from the business recession. So that's where we can start by bringing those youth. And to, to, uh, to give you an example, after COVID, like few, two months or just a month, we had uh, Hurricane Shaheen in Oman. Two weeks ago on 2nd of October, we had Hurricane, we destroyed North uh, Batna region. People were left with no homes no water, no electricity for nearly three weeks. Only youth with the army, with the people uh, who volunteers to go and clean their houses because their houses until the, the ceiling are full of mud because of the rain. So youth were the power for people with, with no power left. So this is another example that I have to praise and uh, say that youth are the only solution. Youth are the only agents that we can depend on to reform all the, uh, the challenges that we have today. And that's the, the potential in youth where you know, it's seen in the disaster relief efforts that, that, you, that you mentioned in your example. Uh, my colleague Asif Shuja talked about ask a question about uh, you know marriage in Islam and 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 you know in Muslim societies that's a concept of marriage as a condition of marriage you know the the gift from the, the husband to be to the wife to be does this practice you know I guess this uh, sort of uh, you know goes back to your talk about you know social barriers does this condition of marriage promote gender equality and and 
you know, and if I may add to that, you know, should, should there be changes, you know, in, in such practices? Mahal, <laughs> it's a gift, or maybe uh, from husband to his wife. This is, uh, maybe it belongs to Islam or Sharia law, but before Sharia or before Islam, it says even within, within the Islamic uh, approach that the mahar, it's only a silver ring can be enough. A silver ring or even uh, a ring that made of iron, that's enough uh, to be as a gift from the husband. This has nothing to do with the Islam, the mahar, it's, it's just a, a concept. But what we are facing since, let's say, 50 years, it's unbelievable how people exaggerate when they ask for mahar to their daughter or to the bride. It's nothing to do with the Islam, it's the mentality of the community. People uh, seeing their daughter as she is uh, very high, uh, I don't know what, how to say it, but it's not easy to be taken by a man or to be married to anyone. And he has to wait her uh, by gold or by, by cash. And this is actually became uh, another social and economic uh, issue because majority of youth who graduate, they have not enough money or not even earned enough money to be able to save that money to pay it for the bride that he will willing to have her as, as a wife. So he has to go to the banks and get loans. And that was really uh, in 1980s, one of the issues that the government tackled that the mahar has to be very, very minimized to the average that youth can live with no pressure on their own credits. Because majority of these uh, marriages end up with the pressure on the husband because he has loans, he has to pay back to the, to the banks and then they will end up divorce. Do you get me? Yeah, got you. Uh, another question coming in is about uh, the role of young women in uh, cybersecurity in the MENA region. There is a trend on this witnessing an increase in young women's role in, in cybersecurity. Is this also the case in Oman? Yes, there are specific actually uh, scholarships for the STEM, only STEM, which is different uh, topics of science and even cyber uh, technology or uh, the science and everything. Now it's a trend. Majority of girls, young girls, they are looking to have specialized or to have degree in a cyber uh, tech positions or um, specializations. Why? Because that what I when I mentioned that youth are very strong when it comes to online uh, communications or uh, e uh, markets. So now it's a trend in the GCC itself that majority of young girls would like to have more uh, specialization on this uh, subject. And building on that, another question is on, you know, the incentives that you talked about earlier. So can governments in the GCC encourage the private sector to hire the youth and women through tax incentives 
uh, whether in tax index or PPP constructs? This is supposed to be, yes. I, I encourage this uh, strategy to be uh, implemented by the government, especially because these incentives will encourage uh, uh, young people to work and to feel their dignity is honored by the government and by the private uh, centers and to feel even that youth uh, are needed to reform the business. Yes. And according, no, sorry, one more question. According to the ILO, International Labor Organization, the, the low part participation of women in the labor force is considered a missed opportunity for economic yes. growth and development. So in the post-COVID world, do you share any hope uh, on this uh, economic recovery and uh, you know, revitalizing the participation, participation of women? I hope so. I, ha I have the hope, yes. I have the hope actually for not only women, but only for, my, for the youth in, uh, in general. Because this is the only way we get rid of what the COVID implications has uh, caused and has uh, let people live in a poverty in the MENA region or in some GCCs. And, and we got the, the MDGs and SDGs that you talked about in your presentation, the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, the, the original agenda was set for 2030, you know, how, yes. how far are we into achieving these goals? Are we, are we really falling really short? You know, what's your take? After, we, are, what's your we, are, we, we are actually off track. It's, it won't be easy to go back by 2030. Not, not unless a huge agenda sets by the government with the cooperation of the private sector. It's, it's, it's another very extreme challenge for governments and for communities to go back. You know how long we've been, the, the, whole, the whole world been working on SDGs and MDGs since 2000 and even before that with the Beijing platform is 1995. So what we have been achieved, which is, which is even not far from the target in GCC and in the MENA region, it's, it's, today it's really far away. I'm not uh, optimistic about how to, uh, how to go back, but it's, it will take a huge, a huge uh, budgets, a huge potentials that the government has to build totally different strategies, national strategies. And the worst, the worst thing is the extreme poverty in the MENA region. And unemployment rates. That's these two. In education system, I think it's much even easier that they can work very uh, intensive to, to bring back the rates that we have that the, the GCC and the MENA region have achieved. But when it comes to poverty, when it comes to gender inequality, we are still need to do a lot of work, a lot of efforts, and it's not easy. It, we, want, we, want, we have left like eight years to, 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 to 30, there is no way. Thanks for your remark. And, and, and incidentally or coincidentally, we got a question on education that you mentioned in, in this, the quality of education, really. The question is about, you know, 
how high is the quality of education in the Arab world? And how does the GCC institution, educational institutions rank among uh, the Arab world institution, educational institutions? GCC is better than the MENA region, actually. Maybe uh, UAE and uh, Qatar are the top when it comes to education hub that they have uh, worked for since uh, 2000. Majority of the private universities from all over the world uh, brought to Qatar and uh, to UAE. But the quality of education, it's another issue that they have to uh, get a new strategy. Not only the quality of education, but also the vocational training institutes, private sectors. And they, uh, the psychrastic that it's uh, youth prefer to have a uh, very low uh, education quality. On the other hand, they want the best position in, 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 in job markets. So they don't want to, to work for their own degree, but they want an easy way to get a higher uh, post in the, in the job markets. A lot of work needs to be done in the, uh, in the uh, quality of education. I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, it's good now, but no, it still, it still need to be focusing on vocational trainings. That's what they required. And they need to also qualify the uh, private universities uh, methods of teaching. Yeah. And if my, I may add one question in, you know, uh, you, you, you taught in, you taught and still are still te teaching in Sultan Qaboos University and you've seen the educational institutions across the region, uh, including some of the mega projects such as Education City in Qatar. So how do you, have you, have you had a look and compared the curriculum that is being delivered to students uh, and, and, and where there are public universities, how do they fare? What, how, how, how do you assess them? Actually, I've been even uh, a visiting professor in some of the Saudis universities. Uh, and also uh, board member in some of the private in GCC. And I visited also some of the giving a talk and uh, presentation in, in, uh, in Oman, uh, private universities also in Sultan Qaboos University since I left the government. It depends on the name of the university because the name is a reputation. If it is very high standard university, either in Qatar or in Bahrain or in UAE, it, their, their methods of teaching are totally different comparing to the uh, government universities. Not only the, the methods, but also the quality of the professors hiring by the top-ranked universities comparing to the national universities. The paying as well, the paying incentives, uh, another, another part. So it's, it's, it depends on the university itself and the reputation where it is. Is it, is it, is it really um, university made by GCC or MENA region business people? So that's from A to Z, it's uh, national entities, or is it being uh, attracted by uh, Business people, but it's it's uh, it's part of the uh, of the world university rank uh, universities. So yeah, that's that's the difference. Uh, we got another question from my colleague Georgi uh, on 
the demographic trends in the MENA slash GCC, and you talked a bit about the imbalance as well in, in the GCC. So how does the current economic situation have an impact on these demographic trends? And you talked a bit about, you know, the national versus non-national populations, especially in the GCC, there's an imbalance. And there was an exodus, you know, you know, expat exodus from last year when COVID started. So what, what's happening now? Uh, is the GCC still reliant on, on this migrant workforce? That's, I think. The, wor the workforce, it's still imbalanced between male and female, actually, in the workforce. It's still imbalanced because even now, if we're going gradually to the normal life after COVID and people with the uh, vaccine start to feel relief from the stress and from the lockdown, but still a huge gap in some sectors especially private sectors that remain unfilled. This is where, where national youth has to be uh, brought into to fill that gap. But still, still uh, uh, the, uh, the private sectors trying now to recover by bringing again the expatriate back to the countries because some of the huge uh, uh, constructions sectors are depending on the expatriates with the low skills workers. There is no way nationals can be replaced in that uh, construction uh, sectors. Maybe they can be replaced in education system or health uh, healthcare or social care, but not in the constructions where they can build uh, buildings and roads and, you know, this is need a uh, strong decision that Nationals can work in this. Before the 70s, majority of uh, people in GCC working in the constructions, but there were no much constructions at that time. With the oil booming uh, discovery, then that's the, the, uh, the booming of bringing more people from outside to help them because the government need at that time to have uh, such people work for uh, infrastructures. And with the oil price rebound, I think, you know, now, you know, are we going to expect, number one, you know, of course, we are going to see some recovery and, and some tackling of fiscal challenges, but are we going to see more incentives coming out? I think that was a question I asked earlier, but now specifically with this, you know, rebound in oil prices, the oil and gas sectors are going to be, of course, benefiting from this, but overall, does this benefit? I'm not, I'm not optimistic because the uh, tax the tax uh, implementations already, people are complaining about it. The oil prices, you know, people are driving their own cars in each house. Maybe they have five cars. So everybody is going to the patrol station to just fill up their cars with the high amount, maybe three times more than what before COVID. Uh, the retirement scheme, majority of maybe over within, within the nationals, uh, being sent home because uh, the uh, the market is full or the government is full of inactive uh, stuff or employees where they suppose when they replace, when they send people to the uh, retirement scheme, they're supposed to replace it with the youth. But till now, nothing been done. So the only, the only solution is to bring all youth in the private sectors as uh, uh, diversification and not to depend on oil. We have to get something uh, different than what we had before the corona.
Thank you, Dr. Sharif. Uh, I think, you know, so far, you, you know, when you talked about women and youth, there seems to be not a lot of optimism. So my final question to you is, you know, if you were in the place of an advisor, advisor to the, to the, you know, to the ruling family or to the government in the MENA region, what would you say? What would be your first advice to do to tackle immediately on the subject of women and youth? First thing is to get all women with higher degree has to be uh, in the job markets. This is the number one uh, to bring up the uh, the national employment uh, participations within the within the women of the GCC. Number two, to open all windows and doors for youth to take part in the job markets and to bring them whatever or whoever their uh, their degree is to 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 be part of the uh, of the uh, development. Number three, which is the 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 should be the best, is the quota implementation in the parliament for women. So let us close today's session now, and let me thank our guest speaker, Dr. Sharifa Yahai, for joining us, for delivering a wonderful presentation, or staying us throughout the Q and A segment to answer all the questions. And to the audience, of course, for putting in the questions. And our MEI events team for making all of this possible. Thank you, everyone. And I'd like to say that next Thursday's uh, presentation or lecture will be shifted to Friday because it's a public holiday, Dipavali, as all you all know. Uh, and it will be on religion and political Islam by Dr. Noor Shari Osad. And also, interestingly, on Wednesday, the upcoming Wednesday, we'll have a webinar on the politics of sport following the Saudi takeover of Newcastle United. So stay tuned for these events next week. And once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Sharifa for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Clemens. And thanks for the audience and the students and very best uh, luck with all the uh, Middle East Institute students and whoever joined us today for the talk. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.